You're listening to the Trust Issues Podcast. I'm David Puner, a senior editorial manager at CyberArk, the global leader in identity security. The democratization of just fill in the blank. The phrase has become a tired de facto conference track title. Just do a search, it's everywhere. The democratization of finance, information, culture, creativity. They've all been democratized and delivered to the masses. Yet, the phrase may legitimately be the best way to describe the sweeping global ransomware phenomenon that's plaguing organizations everywhere. Once a tactic reserved for highly skilled criminals, extortion involved heart-pounding bank heists, airplane hijackings, and abducted French kings commanding 3 million gold crowns. But now, thanks to cheap plug-and-play ransomware kits, anyone with a credit card can get in on the cyber extortion action, no special training or skills required. How have we gotten here? Where's it all headed? What can we do? It's the focus of today's episode of Trust Issues. In today's episode, I talked to Andy Thompson, advisor evangelist for CyberArk Labs, and a guy you really would want to have at your dinner table or maybe go on a road trip with. He knows so much about cybersecurity and every aspect of it and can go deep and just make anything interesting, which is why we start with a subject that is inherently interesting, and that is ransomware. And I think you're going to enjoy it, so why don't we just get to it? I'll stop the babbling, and uh, let's hear from Andy Thompson. We're going to talk about arguably the biggest and most pervasive cyber threat out there, ransomware. Do you, first of all, I guess, do you agree with that that statement? Absolutely. I mean, ransomware has just blossomed, not just from its inception, but really within the last two years. I mean, we've seen a, a triple-digit increase in uh, the proliferation of ransomware. And, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, the business model has changed. No longer do you have to be evil enough to create the content and the, uh, the ransomware, but you just have to be malicious enough to propagate it. And uh, that's really where the ransomware as a service has um, really springboarded ransomware as far as a threat in, in you know personal and corporate environments. How have we gotten to the point where ransomware came into being and then and now we're at this point where we're talking about triple extortion and ransomware as a service really things have things have gotten crazy over the years but they probably started out seeming crazy and now they're Super crazy. I, I want to set this stage. Uh, 1989 Global AIDS Conference. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Joseph Pop uh, was distributing, I think, 20,000 different floppy disks uh, with uh, software and uh, actually had a note on there from PC Cyborg Company stating that after several days, 90 days to be specific, uh, the computer would be basically inoperable and they'd have to send a check for $189 to a P.O. box in Panama. Now, um, yeah, Scotland Yard didn't take to uh, 
uh, kindly to that and ultimately arrested him and charged him for extortion. So uh, that was the inception of ransomware. Since then, it has changed in really due to the internet in the ability to proliferate uh, ransomware. And, and along with that came the creation of cryptocurrency and uh, pseudo-anonymous transactions. Uh, that really was what caused ransomware to basically explode. It's, you know, money laundering at the nth degree. And so I think that's really kind of what caused ransomware within, you know, ever since, you know, the internet in 2009, 2011, when cryptocurrency came into play. So how did cryptocurrency allow it to blossom or explode as the case may be? Well, I mean, originally we were talking about, you know, writing a check and then came, you know, gift cards and uh, money orders and green dot. And all of that had a, a paper trail, essentially, uh, leading right back to the, you know, the ransomware operators. Uh, with Bitcoin in particular, that that technology allowed for, again, that pseudo anonymous uh, financial transaction. Uh, what we've seen even recently uh, more so is uh, moving to a whole different cryptocurrency called Monero, where uh, an obfuscated ledger basically allows for completely anonymous uh, transactions of finances and essentially money laundering. Does that make it just a, a losing game if you're a defender? I mean, these ransomware outfits have like global help desks. They have, you know, training materials. They've got professional level back ends supporting these, you know, malicious outfits. So I think what we're finding is, is it's less, you know, uh, wild, wild west and, and craziness, but more a migration to professionalism and processes uh, based out of these outfits. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. It's kind of like when the Sundance Film Festival becomes legitimate or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking to you about this today, Andy, and you are, uh, you're an expert in many things, um, but you've definitely been um, deep involved and interested in ransomware for a while now. Can you sort of give us a little bit of a rundown of, uh, of how you got involved and how it is involved in your day-to-day -day now? Yeah, absolutely. So I really started researching ransomware back in 2016. Uh, I'm an active member and one of the uh, organizers for the Dallas Hackers Association back here in Dallas. Somebody reached out to uh, the Dallas Hackers Association stating a problem. It was kind of a sad story, really. A widower uh, recently lost his wife and uh, all their photos from you know years and years and years uh, were stored on this machine that was compromised by ransomware. Uh, he didn't know what to do, so reached out to us, and uh, we see, did our best to help this gentleman. We were able to actually recover the encryption key and restore all his files. But that really got me thinking, you know, how far is this being taken? And so I started researching you know, history of ransomware, analysis of how it works, you know, and, and really, most importantly, the mitigation controls around ransomware. Since then, I've become part of the ransomware task force. Let's take two steps back. I want to ask you about the ransomware task force in a second. But first, uh, to go back to the Dallas hacking scene for a second, the gentleman who reached out to you uh, regarding the images that he was trying to get back. How does he get connected with the Dallas hacking scene? What does the Dallas hacking scene look like? Is it kind of, you know, uh, to those who, who don't know anything about it, or, or maybe it's just me, 
Um, when I think of something like that, it's like, you know, you can't find us. We'll, we'll, we'll find you or something or whatever the A team oh, saying no. is. It's, it's quite the opposite. Okay. We're, we're totally out there in the public. Um, you know, we have a meetup, a website that, uh, it's on meetup.com. And, uh, this organization meets once a month, uh, at a, a, a Korean karaoke bar of all places. <laughs> and, uh, we basically have a miniature conference once a month with lock picking. Uh, we have a capture the flag competition. We have 15 minute, uh, fire infosec talks uh it, it's really cool it's it, it's like a miniature defcon about how many of those communities would you say are around the country Honestly, they're all of them, really. Uh, if you look hard enough, you can find ISSA chapters, ISC squared chapters. Those are, you know, the meetings are, are on their websites, but. DEFCON groups, uh, there's chapters all over the United States. Hacking is not a crime, another organization with multiple chapters all over the world. Uh, there's the B-Sides conferences that, again, are all over from you know Dallas to Tel Aviv to Sydney, Australia to Las Vegas. Uh, all of these are, are just near and dear to my heart. So. so back to the ransomware task force for a second. That is... Um that is something internal um, at CyberArk, or is that uh, elsewhere? It's actually external. It's a it's a collective of about sixty different organizations that have partnered sh- uh, together, um, just experts in the industry, to provide guidance to governments and and uh, corporate organizations, uh, providing recommendations regarding security control, cybersecurity insurance, uh, mitigation methods, uh, you name it. And uh, so I'm just a small part of that organization. We talked about the beginning of ransomware and then how it just was really able to explode with the internet. In 2017, we had the, the WannaCry outbreak. 2017, not Petya. 2020, SolarWinds. 2021, Kaseya. And those are just you know a few of the notable names. How have the defenders evolved along with the, uh, the offenders, as it were? Uh, that's a great question. Let's start with uh, where we're seeing um, more adoption in, and it is the fact that these criminal organizations are consolidating. Uh, there's uh, several uh, major outfits like uh, um, R. Evil, Conti, uh, Lapsus is big in the news today. Um, these organizations are, are, are consolidating and, and really focusing their attacks on big organizations. It's no longer the kind of spray and pray spam emails and, uh, uh, that you see in the past. They're spear phishing. They're targeting individuals within organizations for what I call or what we call business email compromise. You're more apt to, to accept an email and an attachment from a legitimate email within your organization, right? Um, so we're seeing... Um, the ability of these attackers focusing on uh, application vulnerabilities from externally facing web apps. We're seeing RDP brute forcing of externally facing uh, uh, terminal services sessions. Uh, These sorts of uh, attacks uh, are really what we're seeing as the majority of the vectors in for corporate ransomware. The other thing is, is that they're no longer just satisfied with, you know, compromising a single machine. Uh, Once the foothold is established, there's, goodness, you know, upwards of 100 days of dwell time within these organizations before they pull the trigger and execute the end game. And and that's really the the ransomware. Uh, and, And I think what's really important to note is kind of the change in the definition of what ransomware is. Previously, it was, you know, just, you know, 
encrypting files and holding that for ransom. Uh, and we've seen organizations like Lapsus that completely bypass the file encryption and move straight to double extortion where they're holding the files for ransom. They're exfiltrating the data, uh, the proprietary sensitive information, uh, and, and again, holding that for ransom. So uh, let's let's just call a spade a spade, folks. I mean, it, it's ransomware is extortion. That, that's the simple answer. We, we've really moved from file encryption. Uh, and again, that's still present in the industry, but we're just talking about straight up extortion. So I've also seen IoT devices being compromised. Uh, we saw recently at DEF CON, well, not recently, a couple of years back, but a uh, IoT uh, heating and uh, air conditioning thermostat was compromised. They could let, literally sweat you out of house and home until you pay the ransom. Uh, I also recently saw uh, some evidence of uh, mobile software on uh, televisions being compromised by ransomware. Um, so I think a lot of that has to do with that uh, ransomware authors are starting to use uh, cross-platform scripting languages in order to do this sort of malicious activity. So uh, we're seeing a lot of evolution in, in the advancement of ransomware uh, from a software perspective, from a target perspective, you name it. We are in the business of defending and protecting here. This is a pretty big battle. Can it be one? And obviously, you know, organizations are comprised of individuals. What can we do from an individual standpoint and what can organizations do to fight back? I think the reason why ransomware works initially is, is because organizations fail to practice, you know, good security hygiene. And they're using somewhat ineffective methods to, to mitigate ransomware. And so from a personal perspective, I, I think it's about being vigilant, being aware of what ransomware is, how it propagates, what to be aware of. Uh, so in the event that, you know, your grandmother, for example, gets a, a, a ransomware spam message that she's aware of, you know, not clicking these sorts of things. Another thing that I recently released uh, on my GitHub is a really, really simple script that just reassigns the default application from PowerShell uh, to Notepad. Uh, so uh, again, there's, there's probably no reason why my grandmother should be executing batch scripts and things like that. So uh, check out my GitHub. It's a uh, GitHub slash binary wasp. It's a terrible, terrible name I picked back in high school, but I still keep it around. Simple security controls go a long way in preventing ransomware from a, a personal perspective. But from a larger enterprise organization perspective, there's two acronyms that I, I really promote, and it's a least privilege and application control. So LP and AC. Uh, those two things as a combination go a incredibly long way in preventing today's version of ransomware. Um, what I've seen, again, when I mentioned kind of ineffective methods is signature-based AV, for example. You know, uh, ransomware in today's malware is what we call polymorphic. Uh, it changes. I mean, simply flipping a byte changes the, the hash and the fingerprint of the, these ransomware strains. And so signature-based stuff doesn't really work. And then you see some EDR endpoint data protection agents and things like that can detect the behavior, but only after the fact. So I personally believe that the, you know, the concept of least privilege, removing local admin rights, uh, can prevent the installation of uh, really aggressive malware. So attackers can't do reconnaissance and propagate and laterally move within a network. 
But more importantly is application control. This is a hard thing to do in a lot of organizations when you explicitly allow or explicitly deny uh, applications. So uh, what I advocate for like server environments, for example, you know exactly what software is supposed to be running on that system. Uh, really allow listing um, is the, the recommendation there. Uh, when it comes to endpoints, it's a little harder. I mean, I just had to upgrade my, my Chrome on my browser or browser just to get into this uh, webcast today. Um, new software is coming out. It's a challenge for an IT organization to allow list everything. So uh, I call this kind of a gray listing approach to uh, application control, uh, hamstringing and limiting the capacity of binaries in your environment. So uh, for example, if we restrict a piece of malware, uh, unknown binary in our organization from uh, internet access, for example. It can't facilitate that encryption key exchange that many ransomware variants use. Another thing is, is preventing the ability for unknown binaries and applications from reaching out to shared uh, network volumes and, and map drives. That, again, prevents the ability for ransomware to propagate beyond the initial uh, infection. So, the, again, the combination of least privilege and application control go an incredibly long way. I also think end user awareness training. I, I kind of mentioned that earlier from my, my grandmother's perspective, but I think it goes a long way in uh, corporate environments as well. Another thing that I think a lot of corporate environments need to be aware of or, or start doing if they're not already is operate under that assumed breach mindset. This is really scary, folks. Uh, Lapsus, the, the organization that's uh, in the news currently, uh, they uh, are soliciting malicious insiders to establish that foothold. So you don't have to worry about, you know, vulnerabilities. They're, they're opening the door wide open for these folks. Uh, if you have and operate under assumed breach mindset, uh, you're watching internally just as aggressively as you are externally for these sorts of malicious threats. So I think a combination of user awareness, uh, technical controls like least privilege, application control, and, and operating under that assumed breach mindset will go a long way in protecting corporate organizations. So you mentioned a couple things there that I think are, are pretty interesting. The idea of uh, malicious insiders, what can we possibly do about that? Watch the watchers. Um, Oftentimes, we're seeing this from the perspective of an IT organization, a system, rogue systems administrator. But uh, we need to be aware that that's no longer the case. I mean, somebody in accounting or finance, procurement, HR, you know, legal, these people have sensitive information that can be leaked. I mean, uh, so again, be aware that it's no longer just an IT problem. Um, watch your privileged users for malicious activities. Uh, make sure that you're locking down the end user workstations so that in the event that a machine is compromised, that it can't facilitate reconnaissance. It can't facilitate lateral movement or privileged escalation. Uh, we ultimately want to stop the initial foothold, but in the event that the foothold is already established, we want to make it as difficult as possible to establish that foothold and, and really propagate that ransomware. So the last couple of years, we've been talking a lot about work from anywhere and how it's ramped up the opportunities for these you know, malicious actors or how have we come to adapt better to that. Well, COVID really kind of kick-started and ramped 
digital transformation into like the the next level. Um, what we've seen is is a mass migration to working remotely, working from home. What I see there is a real risk. I mean, we see people working their day jobs from the same machine that their kids are playing Minecraft on. Um, that's particularly scary because oftentimes we see that corporate security controls don't propagate down to the the machines and mobile devices that uh, you know people are using to to do their job, which is really scary. But we've also seen uh, migration to remote access uh, to secure environments. There's secure ways to tunnel traffic and tunnel uh, your day-to-day job in a remote and secure way. I feel that, in my personal opinion, of course, that uh, the digital transformation that has happened so recently due to COVID is more so exposing us to risk uh, than it is helping us from a ransomware perspective. What can happen if an organization does receive that, you know, initial infection, is that just game over or is there, is there something positive that they can do to get out of that situation? Not necessarily game over. I mean, yeah, it's bad. I mean, you need to assess the damage, you know, find out what potentially has been encrypted, what ultimately uh, sensitive information or systems uh, have been exposed to this uh, level of an attack it's not in the logs, it didn't happen, or you not you don't know what you don't know, right? Uh, so, you know, go back to the logs and, and, and really kind of find that some at level of attribution. Um, but again, it's not necessarily game over, because uh, if you're doing things right, you've got some level of air-gapped backups to restore from. Uh, ideally, that's what I would advocate for, is never to pay a ransom, but to, to do your best to facilitate a backup and recovery program. Um, that's easier said than done. Um, so what I really advocate for is a lot of organizations to do a regular, um, mock ransomware event. There's also cybersecurity insurance, which I'm, I'm still kind of on the fence about, but it goes a long way in recovery financially, as well as instantiating some of the basic controls within the organization as well. Uh, in order to even receive uh, cyber insurance, the, the minimum uh, security controls have to be in place. And so that goes a long way in you know, preventing uh, ransomware. But I, ideally, the controls that we're recommending here proactively prevent and, and also help constrain the damage as well. So uh, I, I hope that kind of answers your question. Uh, yeah. It answers my question in a big way, I think. Thank you for that. We've talked about, you know, how it started, um, how it's evolved, where we've been with it in the last few years. Where, where is this all going? I mean, I, not that you've got a magic ball, but where is it going? And, you know, as defenders, um, you know, how do we best keep on top of that so we can, we can do our jobs successfully? Oh, wow. Great question. Where is ransomware moving to? I got my answer right now. It's industrial control systems. I think that's going to be the next wave of ransomware. Ransomware no longer has to just encrypt files. Uh, we're seeing, uh, again, that double extortion holding the information for ransom. Um, but also we're seeing triple extortion. Yes, um, if I was you hoping you would ransom, mention that. DDoS you. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I think those are some of the advancements that we're going to see right. in, the, in, in the ransomware landscape. Triple extortion doesn't sound good at all. Maybe I heard this wrong. I'm not sure. But that more and more ransomware is going to be industry specific. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it depends on who who's actually the the, the malicious actor behind the the keyboard. But uh, we're seeing industries like healthcare being particularly targeted by uh, certain ransomware operators uh, because of the fact that this is extremely sensitive information that we're dealing with, and it's very time sensitive. I mean, there are documented cases that uh, systems being offline have cost people their lives. It really has real ramifications. There was a famous bank robber, and uh, they were asked, why are you robbing banks? And the answer is, because that's where the money is. And I think that's what we're going to see a lot of in the future. And currently, really, uh, bad actors, these ransomware operators are no longer targeting the piddly onesies and twosies and, you know, $100 ransoms. They're going after $5 million, $11 million ransoms. And so uh, I think what we're going to see is uh, uh, bigger ransoms and, and bigger consequences. Andy, um, I, I look forward to doing part two of this podcast sometime in the near future because you're just a fantastic wealth of information. If you want to leave the listeners here with one thing, what's another thing that they that they should know going out of this conversation about ransomware. Ransomware is real. It's evolved over time. It'll continue to evolve. Um, but at the same time, I think the recommendation is, is, is solid. It's, it's foundational and it's not going to change whether it's, you know, file encryption, whether it's data exfiltration, whether you name the instantiation of malware and propagating through the network. Uh, again, I've been dogging on my grandmother real hard <laughs> on this call today, but uh, she, she told me something a, a while back that I thought was really poignant. And I, it's something that I want to leave you with. An ounce of prevention is, is worth a pound of cure. And by proactively putting in controls in place, specifically least privilege and application control, end user awareness. These sorts of things really go a long way in protecting your organization. And if there's another thing that I've taken from this conversation, it is do not mess with Andy's grandma. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Andy, this has been awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Trust Issues. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question, comment, constructive comment, preferably, but, you know, it's up to you. Or an episode suggestion, please drop us an email at trustissues at cyberarc.com. And make sure you're following us wherever you listen to podcasts. 